I think it's pretty good that we made it this far. I'm sure there have been moments when we wondered why, why did we come? But my sense it's been a really auspicious week, even a bit more together, and culminating in such a beautiful ceremony this afternoon. We've been in a very protected space, a sanctuary that was set up to help support us. Sacred site, it's been dedicated to prayer, contemplation, investigation for a long time. Coordinators, staff, managers, helping provide what we need so that we can withdraw, step back from our lives, get it into perspective. And there might be some uh, apprehension about uh, heading back. And it's challenging, uh, challenging. being balanced in this life, but encouraging us to trust the process as we've been remembering the, the saying of the Buddha, Magahatakilesawapatanupatidamatang, that this path, this activity of a mindfully, ethically, connecting with this moment, steadying, investigating, that this path activity in and of itself breaks up that which obstructs us, that the goal, the homecoming, the fruits of practice arise of their own accord according to the natural law. Our Chinese uh, master used to tell the story of the uh, farmer that was always looking for shortcuts. He had... uh, rice fields and they were just taking entirely too long to grow and he came back and proudly announced to his kids one morning, I've done it. We're really going to have a fast crop now. And they went out and and looked, he had uh, pulled all the little seedlings up an inch. He was grinning. 
they might have shook their heads. Because by the afternoon and the next morning, all the little seedlings had, uh, had wilted, were pulled out of the, from the roots. Just encouraging us to be patient with this organic process. The, the Buddha, on many occasions, reminding us that this is a gradual training. He said, just as the ocean has a gradual shelf, a gradual slope, a gradual inclination, with a sudden drop-off only after a long stretch. In the same way, this dharma and this disciplined way of training ourselves has a gradual training, a gradual performance, a gradual progression, with a penetration to awakening only after a long stretch. Or sometimes the Buddha compared it to walking in the mist, walking into the mist. He would ask the question, now, at what point did you get wet? Well, little by little by little, the moisture is penetrating our clothing. touching into our skin, penetrating our body. So too, little by little, as we immerse ourselves, remember, reconnect with this ground of awareness, steadiness, investigation, letting go, welcoming, that little by little the moisture, the blessing, healing, rejuvenating, illuminating, rain of the Dharma uh, suffuses, permeates our being. Uh, Someone might be thinking, excuse me, Kitty Sorrel, but you know, I've read lots of Zen stories. And, um, you know, when the master goes whack, and uh, boom, you know, don't want to interrupt, but it doesn't sound gradual. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) The principle... The essence is immediate. It's always here and now shining, which is incredible. But the ripening is gradual, just as a fruit, when it drops off in a moment. But the ripening is gradual. It's important to remember so that there's at least ease in our practice. If we have this view that we're getting there out there, then that is endless. That's polishing that brick. It's important to remember that the peace is here. 
so that little by little we relax. But it's just helpful as we carry on with our practice to remember that uh, to be patient. Ajahn Chah put it like this. First one learns dharma, but does not yet understand it. Then one understands, but has not yet practiced. One practices, but has not seen the truth of dharma. Then one sees dharma, but one's being has not yet become dharma. The sotapanna, the stream enterer, enters the dharma, sees the dharma, but his or her being is not yet dharma. Sometimes there will be anger or desire, and they will know them, yet still follow after them, because although he knows and sees dharma, the being is not yet dharma. The mind has not become dharma. So one may study the Dharma, understand the Dharma, practice the Dharma, see the Dharma, but to actually be Dharma is something quite difficult. It is a place for each individual to reach, a point where there is no falsehood. From hearing the Dharma all the way to seeing it, you will still have suffering. You won't be free of unsatisfactory experience until you are dharma. Until you are dharma, your happiness still depends on external factors. You lean on them. You lean on pleasure, on reputation, on wealth, on material things. You may have all sorts of knowledge, but this knowledge is still tainted by worldliness and cannot release you from suffering. You're still like a bird in a cage. We've done a lot of wonderful practice together this week. hearing the Dharma, studying it, and understanding. Beginning with a a safety net, remember, on our first night. Taking refuge in the Three refuges, what's called the triple jewel, the most precious things, the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, and making an offering just by intending as we spend this time together the training of not harming ourselves or each other, not taking what doesn't belong, not exploiting ourselves or each other, sensually or sexually. 
working with noble silence or when we speak and making the effort not to use false or divisive or harsh or just meaningless speech, trying to speak truth. Not seeking nibbana, freedom through intoxication, but honoring this instrument of awakening, making that gift. Sensing that by us not acting on things that harm, everyone around us can breathe more easily. Just noticing creating a safer space for us to be together. Exploring this nature of the Dharma, these practices of steadying and calming. How the Buddha taught that when we, for a time, subdue, recognize when the mind is compulsively flowing out with longing, I wish it was this way, I wish it was that way, the longing and distress and grief with regard to the world, not wanting things, wanting things, not judging that, but just for a time learning to allay, to subdue, to let be, to let go for the sake of cultivating this remembering, this connection with our body, with this moment, with this earth, that we're on this earth, feeling the gravity pulling us, the support of ground, steadying the mind, breathing in and out, returning, steadying, feeling that strength, that centeredness that comes from ground. Even if we get a hint of it, It's important to cultivate the possibility of a holiday, a restoration, an ease that is not dependent on this special thing, that special thing, but an ease that comes from us just gathering ourselves here, whether we're standing, sitting, walking, lying down, feeling the blessing of an in-breath, the relaxation of an out-breath, Little by little, and over the course of a lifetime, getting more able to cultivate a pleasing abiding in the here and now that doesn't harm. We've been just understanding that if one is only dependent on a pleasure that's depending on beautiful sights and beautiful sounds and beautiful taste, that There's nothing bad about it, but the pleasure keeps dissolving and we keep wanting to be filled up and it keeps dissolving. And if we're not careful, we can continually be seeking and and lose our ground, lose a rootedness, lose an ease, lose an enjoying just letting be. And then with our own quality of steadiness, we've had the chance to 
to look into the nature of things. The principle of the Dharma is that actually the characteristic of everything in this world that we take to be me and mine, all forms, whether they're this body, those bodies, the buildings, the villages, the trees, the plants, the animals, the galaxies, the subatomic particles, the sounds, the sights, that all the forms are becoming otherwise in every moment. And yet if we don't know that because of the nature of our perception, of our language, when we think we've got success or pleasure or happiness and as Ajahn Chah was saying, lean on it. Just like leaning on a chair, assuming that it's solid. Maybe we didn't look close enough and it collapses. Now what happens when we lean on conditions? We experience birth and death. That's the theory we've had the chance to practice. Observing change. Encourages us not to overlook the insights we do have. The Buddha taught that even one finger snap of recognizing change, anicca, he says, has immense blessing in it, the energy that can help lead to that which is wished for, agreeable, happy. He went through all these wonderful things one can do. One can make offerings and serving people and helping people who are hungry and, and uh, taking care of others and even making offerings to those who are uh, practicing and making offerings to wise saints and sages and building homes. And he talked about all these things that are very good karma. And it's not saying we shouldn't do that. But then he said, higher than all that is even a finger snap, a moment of noticing change. Because that little hairline fracture, we notice it's there and it's gone. Hairline fracture in the concretization, the solidification, the objectification of the real stuff is out there. We start to see change. Then there can begin to be a disenchantment. That's a skillful state, a disenchantment. When we're enchanted, mesmerizing, we think we can really have my health, my success, my... It's not that these are bad things. 
But when we're enchanted, then when things are going well, we get so excited and swelled up, and then when they change, we feel devastated, like someone's knocked the floor out from under us. That's called birth and death. As we've worked on being with change, we've been having the opportunity then to notice this space it's happening in, the awareness, the refuge. First it's just a, a theory, an idea, something we study or hear about, but we've had the chance to practice letting our abiding place be Buddha, the listening, the one that knows, that's aware. And as we see things come and go, as we've been working with the breathing, this, this uh, becomes a reality. And we've contemplated the uh, way that we get so enchanted with the forms that we almost assume the, what's around them is nothing. We've allowed ourselves to notice the space around form, the silence around sound, the awareness that is the womb, the context, the matrix. Of our experience that our moods and happiness and unhappiness, the flow of the day like right now is all happening within a presence, a listening. Whatever one names one gives it is just another word that dissolves. We don't have to give it a name. Turning the mind to the deathless. Realizing that as we embrace change, we find ourselves abiding in the stillness. that the change and stillness are not split. Getting a feeling for emptiness. And sometimes it's, it's new territory as that what, when we start to sense how the world is flickering and shifting, it can be scary. We might start to wonder, oh my gosh, what will happen to my scintillating personality? The In America, as I, as I was uh, growing up, the kind of the biggest put-down of somebody, you know, they're boring when I was growing up. So emptiness can be be scary when you know wonder, well am I gonna become an enlightened doorknob? Oh yeah, he he broke through. Yeah, it was on that August retreat. Yeah went right through. 
Hey, he's been sitting there for a couple of years. <laughs> doesn't, doesn't say much. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there, there he is. <laughs> we can worry about what's going to happen. And, um, but our, our teacher, Ajahn Chah, encouraged us, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of the emptiness. He said it's like a it's like a bell or a gong that has a space, a lovely space. We see the lovely space in the gong, we can think, well, that's not being used very efficiently. I can put my bookmarks in there and my clock. In fact, a second clock, because the first clock, you know, might break. I mean, then what do you do? Have a second clock and all sorts of stuff to fill the space. And something, you know, comes along and you want to hit the bell and clank, thud. It's cluttered. We're so filled with our strategies. What might go wrong? What I have to do? I mean, obviously planning has its place, but when, it's, when we're afraid of the space, of the gap, then there's so much projection, we're, in a way, we're not even in touch. We miss a lot. We can really get it wrong. Yet that empty space, he said, little by little we can learn how to be still open and, you know, something touches. And there's a resonance. And sometimes we can feel, you know, because tomorrow the special conditions and start to dissolve. And when we start talking, that can be a little overwhelming at breakfast. By the way, I encourage us to be very gentle with each other. Be sensitive, and if you're busy excitedly telling someone about your fourth out of your 11 major insights, and you notice they look like they're pinned on the wall, (laughs) you might should uh, breathe, notice the space. And you know, as we, we go back, things do get, get busier and, and sometimes it just feels like, oh, well, this is just for special occasions, retreat. And yes, it's wonderful to go on retreat and have extra protection, but what we are working on here can be irrigated out or these seeds can be planted in our lives. People who'd come to Ajahn Chah and... and uh, 
complain about the lay, their lay life, they would say, Loom Paw, which is the affectionate term we had for our Thai master, it means venerable father. They say, Loom Paw, Loom Paw, I'm just so busy, I don't have time to practice. And he goes, nah. You're so busy you don't have time to breathe? And they say, oh, well, 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 I have time to breathe. I thought you said you didn't have any time. Well, I have time to breathe. He said, if you have time to breathe, you have time to practice, to notice a breath. to have an urgent thought and to just notice I'm in a hurry and to just pause. The phone rings or an email appears, got to answer it now. You know, used to you'd write letters and this and that. Now we feel like we've got to do instant things and we wait a few hours or even a day. It feels like we're really letting people down. phone rings or a thought occurs, we feel like, I have to do it now. Can we even pause a moment? A moment to breathe, to feel ourselves touching the ground, to notice that finger snap of awareness, finger snap of change to get the sense of conditions coming and going. Trusting, that that's a movement to the refuge. Buddha, Buddha Dharma, aware of the nature, of the way it is. Sangha, remembering that in every moment we have an opportunity to just follow habit, or there's an opportunity to tune to listen in and, and allow our responses to come out of a listening, an awareness, a practice. The Buddha also said uh, even a finger snap of loving kindness has immense value, you're a disciple of the Buddha. That's not impossible. Let's don't overlook. It's interesting, that those are two times when I remember the Buddha mentioning the importance of even a finger snap of change, finger snap of kindness. Why is that so important? Because when we're locked into believing aversion, ill will, or even hatred. That I don't want, that shouldn't be here, get out. We build a wall and we're trapped in that limitation. Moment of kindness, moment of allowing, whatever it is, a sensation, a memory, the reality of a circumstance, a person, even the thought of a person. 
not pretending to like, but allowing, not fighting. It's the touching into that divine abiding, takes us back to the spacious place where things can come and go, touches us back to emptiness. Ajahn Chah wasn't that impressed with all the knowledge a lot of the Westerners had, all these ideas about how it should be in practice. He didn't put down books, but he said the most important book to read, which is what we've really been reading on this retreat, he would say again and again, read the book of the heart so that we really know what it's like to be with desire, wanting, and aversion, not wanting, dullness, and restlessness, anxiety, paralyzing doubt. Not just theoretical, but we really had the chance to practice sensing being entangled Sensing the dukkha, opening to that, not hating the suffering. Knowing by reading the book of the heart what is suffering and sensing how it can deepen us. And also having moments where we realize that this pattern that seems so much like me, this discouragement or doubt, each of us have been through those moments when we start to notice things come and go, there's the moment of, ah, it's a pattern. It's dharma. We have a moment of letting be, of letting go, suffering and not suffering. And as we keep allowing ourselves to notice the gaps and the spaces, and return to listening, and to remember that uh, there's a mystery here, that this life is, this world, this universe has a listening. It's mysterious that this Dharma is always here and now. That yes, when we cling, we create suffering, but that as we really start to honor and allow things to change and be empty and realize they don't really belong to us, as we start to give back and relinquish and rest in the ground of our being, then there can be moments of wonderful existence, things flowing. You never know. Even see, I was very sick for many years. As I uh, mentioned, after I got typhoid fever in, in Thailand, and then I was uh, sick in the monasteries in England for trying to recover, and there was a 
about a three-year period where I rarely got up off the bed just to try to go to the toilet and brush my teeth. I'd get I'd do half of my teeth, be exhausted, try to do the other half. One day I was in this attic room in our monastery in Sussex. We were renovating this old Victorian Chithurst house, it was called. And something made me... It was a little attic, cramped room, but I loved it. It had a place I could lie down and just let go and be supported by the floor. Something made me just crawl over to the side, stand up, and we had this small little window. I looked out. It was a cold, winter, damp afternoon. And as I looked out, I saw this uh, person walking down the drive. There was no one else around with a rope. And I could see a a noose. And I thought, oh, God. I thought, oh, this, this person's going to hang themselves. So I quickly threw a robe over my shoulder and made my way downstairs. It was cold, even in the house. We didn't have much heating in the house. The place, the monastery was deserted. Maybe it was a day after an all-night sitting or something. No one was around. So I went outside, down the drive, a bit misty, hoping to catch the person, and I, at the end of the drive, saw him turn left toward the forest. So I, I tried to follow after. I was a uh, hundred yards or more behind. Anyway, I went down the road and was worried, but I was just saying Namo Kwan Shin Pusa, saying my mantra, trying to relax and trying to send out a an energy of kindness. And um, as I walked down that lane, there was a, a place off the side where one could go into the forest. And I looked, and he was in there with his uh, tying the rope to a tree, preparing to uh, hang himself. And this person had been in prison and was in a really discouraged state. But uh, and had been visiting the monastery. When he saw me, he wasn't pleased. He was saying, "Hey, look, don't bother me. This is this is the way to end the misery." And uh, anyway, I can't remember what I said. I was just trying to talk to him. And at at some point, I was cold. I had a thin little robe. It was a kind of winter, dampish afternoon, misty afternoon. At some point, he noticed that my teeth were chattering, and they were really chattering loud. And he just said, like in shock, he said, Your teeth are chattering. (laughs) 
And he had this heavy motorcycle, black leather jacket. And he took it off and put it around me. And for a time at least, it snapped him out. He was concerned about me. He made a little gift, a connection. wasn't the end of his problems, but what a mystery. Something made me look out the window, a kind thought, and a little gift. Sometimes when we're so trapped in something, a gift, even a thought of If we're reading the Book of the Heart and know that we're suffering, even the thought, may a moment more of this help all the countless others who are suffering. Just this very depression or discouragement or resentment or impossible, debilitating lust or envy or whatever. Make a gift. So much when we want to try to get things from life, frustration, this foundation of that we did on the first night. And just remember, understanding Dhamma, that when we really try to claim what isn't really ours, it leads to frustration. So this is why it's so important at the end of the day we share the goodness of our lives. Because we're relaxing and just like the sun, it shines. We can make a gift in little ways. Let whatever our job is be a gift. Let our meditation be a gift, an offering to ourselves, an offering to others. We've offered all sorts of things, being with the body, calming, investigating, letting go, welcoming, qigong, recitation as well, prayerfulness, to come our body and mind together and to connect, to remember, as we were saying earlier, you know, our mantra can just be, oh, it's too difficult, it's too difficult, it's really, really, really too difficult, it's incredibly difficult, and that can be a mantra. And we can read that, and that is important, these are deep, (coughs) deep patterns, but we also from time to time can honor that which is worthy of honor, and celebrate that with a chant or call on the compassionate one who listens at ease to sounds of the world. We can speak into the silence, because this silence is listening. Sometimes when we're caught up and confused in our private moments, 
can speak into the silence. What do I do about this? And we mindfully hear that suffering, that yearning, that confusion, that's blessed. And then we can listen in to the silence. The great compassionate ones have vowed to respond. Since practicing, there have been so many incredible mysteries, too innumerable to tell. But I love, I love, uh, to me, it's an amazing remembering to bow, to chant. I do recitations every day just to help reset my nervous system, to make sure there's some gaps and spaces and listening. One of the things that we did. Uh, when I was the abbot of a little monastery in Devon, up north of Honiton, is uh, once a year uh, we would go on a little tudong, which means to shake off the monks and nuns would do it too, leave the monastery, leave their routines, and then walk. One year we walked from Honiton up to Bath, one year down to Plymouth, not many miles a day. We wouldn't know where we were going to stay. We would say, well, we're monks on pilgrimage. Do you know where we might be allowed to stay in a field or camp? And some people would say, oh, well, you can, you can stay here. And what do you have to eat? And then we would... Uh, and you would meet people you never would expect to meet. Uh, and yet you're practicing shaking off your routines. I love the walking and it really was good for my health, one step at a time. One year when we were uh, walking and I were in a, I don't know which county it was in, so it was I'm not sure if it was Devon, but we, one of my, we were in the countryside and one of my assistant monks was the map reader. And I was chanting a mantra as I was walking inside. I was just walking, being with one step at a time. Just being happy, feeling the weight of, I had a little pack, but I just, it was such a composing, thing to do, letting the flow of the sensations, even though there was fatigue, it was so pleasing just to breathe and one step at a time, see the light go by. These wonderful lanes, this gentle land of this countryside. And out of nowhere, I felt someone tap me on the head. But it was invisible. There was a, there was a presence that came and tapped me on the head and said, I want you to go right. I said, go right. Because there was a little fork coming up where the little roadway went to right, but then there was a path to the left. And that caught my attention. A very distinct tap on the head and go right. So I didn't tell my fellow monks that, hey, by the way, um, but I was, you know, getting read ready to, uh, I think I did just comment in a few uh, step, 
I just said uh, to the venerable, it was the map reader, I said, I, I think we'll, we'll, we'll go here. And he said, no, 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 that's a long way. This is a, you should go left because see, there's two sides of the triangle and uh, you know, you're going the long way, we should go left. And um, so I didn't actually say, well, someone just tapped me on the head and told me to go right. So I, I surrendered that and went with, with what he wished. So we went down this path to the left and had, hadn't gone far, maybe 50 yards. And, then, and I didn't even see the person, but it's like suddenly someone appeared in a field with a spray backpack and, and looked up and shouted across the field, I wouldn't come this way if I were you. And uh, so I thought that was interesting. So we turned around and went back the way I was shown. And um, we walked along. I can't remember how long it was, but I don't know, 20 minutes or more. And then up ahead on the right side of the road, there's this old man standing. And he looked like he had a little megaphone with him, but I couldn't... And he was like tottering a little bit, but upright. And, it, and I got closer and I got closer, and it was, I think, something to help him hear. But as I got close, he said, The Lord Buddha was enlightened under the Bodhi tree. And he made his way to Kasi to turn the wheel of the law and open the doors to the deathless. Welcome. And he opened his little gate and there was all these tables and tea set out in, in, in China. I don't know how long he'd been waiting there and his, his daughter came up and said, my, my father is 80 today, 80 years old, and he, and he saw you, I don't know, we were driving some hours ago and saw you and he saw you were Buddhist monks and he was wondering, will they come by, will they come by? He was a colonel in India with the Gurkhas and uh, had been introduced to Buddhism and Lamas and, and she said that he probably didn't have long to live. It was so amazing to be there and he showed me his prayer wills and the pictures of his, whatever it was, battalion and the Gurkhas and, and we had our tea and it was so blessed. It's a mystery. Give ourselves the chance just to listen, be open. Who knows what's coming? And also we'll run into challenging things. Discouraging things. Where we felt like we had it and we lost it. 
I had some insight my first year, but then started getting discouraged and my patterns started getting stronger. I was a monk and I didn't know it, I was losing a lot of weight, but my belly seemed to be big. So I think I was a bit anorexic because I thought I was getting fat, but I was actually losing weight. We were eating one meal a day. I had was sick, had diarrhea for six months. And ended up getting bit by a centipede and then hand was swelled swollen for three weeks, then started uh, urinating uh, blood, and I just tried to work harder and do the toughest practices, and just felt my mind was, you know, I'm a monk, supposed to be getting enlightened, and in my mind I could just think about the next meal, vow to be mindful, and then suddenly I would notice my bowl was empty, and I just felt like I have a beached whale. My mind was uh, just uh, filled with lust. And uh, it, everything just seemed so impossible, so difficult. I felt like I really would never laugh again. And at that time, uh, I was in a little monastery for the uh, Westerners and my Western abbot, Ajahn Pabakaro, I asked him, could you help me just get a meeting with Ajahn Chah? I really feel down. And uh, so that, that, uh, the main monastery was a few miles away. And so Pabakaro helped me uh, make our way to the main monastery where Ajahn Chah was and everyone had gone to chanting, but Ajahn Chah stayed in his hut, which was on stilts, and he would receive guests in this little open-air space below his hut. And he was sitting in a chair. And uh, Ajahn Pabakaro could speak fluent uh, Laotian and Thai, so uh, my Thai was very rudimentary, so I was grateful for his help. So Ajahn Chai had made the space just to see, see me. And so... Um, Ajahn Chah kind of grunted, Binyang, which is, which is like, well, what is it? And I said, well, everything is just uh, difficult. Uh, you know, my mind's just uh, greedy, filled with lust, and it actually, everything feels dark. feels like I'll never laugh again. And he goes, hmm. And then he started asking me to tell about myself. So I told him about how I grew up, all the competition in America, the wrestling, the emphasis on being the best, winning, comparing all the time, how I had made so much effort. He listened. Then at a certain point, he just said, hmm, you remind me of a baby squirrel. And so Pabagro says, he says, you remind him of a baby squirrel. <laughs> and he said, and this squirrel sees its mother jump up the trees and go from branch to branch, leaping, doing all these things, and this baby thought, yeah, I'll do, I, that's neat. 
So this baby goes running up in leaps and dog, which means it fell down. And that's the word, I'm probably not pronouncing it just right, but dok means fall. And this baby started crying, baby squirrel, and the mother just said, uh, son, you got to go to school. So meanwhile, you know, Ajahn Chah's talking, he's sitting on his little chair and I'm kneeling uh, before him on the floor, and Prabhakar's whispering in my ear. So he... Uh, had this squirrel going to, you know, kindergarten, first grade, he would learn different tricks and run and then dog, fall down and cry. And uh, anyway, mom just kept saying, hey, you got to keep going to school. So Ajahn Chah had this squirrel going through high school. (laughs) And sometime, you know, in college, I really started to lose it, and I started to roll on the floor hysterically laughing. (laughs) And meanwhile, he's still talking. And he had this squirrel getting a PhD. (laughs) And, uh, and, you know, so I'm just dying laughing. And finally, I'm able to sit up, and Ajahn Chah is grinning. and, And he looked at me, and he said, and one day, that squirrel could do every single thing that its mother could do. It could run, it could leap, it could turn. And I felt this uh, just bliss from the crown of my head down through, through the whole of my body, you know. It's the relief and just laughing, you know, you fall down, you get up, you fall down, you get up, you fall down, you get up, but you know, you can do it. The transmission from him is you can do it, because it's our nature. It's our nature. But as I was basking in that, then he suddenly said, but you also remind me of a donkey. (laughs) Now, I, for years, never didn't tell that story, and then Tanisha of brought the donkey out of the closet. (laughs) Because I didn't just like the donkey story that much. (laughs) And I love the the squirrel, being able to do everything. But anyway, the donkey, which many of you have heard, but uh, he says, you remind me of a donkey. And it was a clever donkey. It uh, heard all the music in the forest from the cicadas, the insects. And this clever donkey, who was also industrious, said, I want to make music. And so it did some research. It started studying these cicadas. What the, oh, they eat dewdrops. Mmm. Okay, so the donkey thought, let me just wait till the next morning. And then he licked dewdrops, tens, hundreds, dare I say thousands, of dewdrops. And then he was ready to make music. And he opened his mouth and was so disappointed. And Ajahn Chah stopped. That was the end of the story. And I said, uh, and? <laughs> so that donkey stayed in the closet a long time. 
but I'm slowly, I'm a very slow learner. It's not about becoming what we're not. And there's such a deep, and it is endemic, self-judgment, harsh judgment of ourself, always down on ourselves, wanting to be someone else. It's listening into this body, this form, that we flower and we make our sound. And we learn to appreciate our sound and our sound gets tuned and adjusted and the alchemy of awareness allows our being to flower, coming out of what we are. Study the school, yes, we practice. And little by little, because the truth is always here and now, we're opening into our nature. But let's watch this tendency to to not honor ourselves, to not be kind, to open up to this to this being. So I encourage us to be patient, be kind. And it really has been a privilege for Tanisha and I to share this uh, time together because I deeply believe it has been a big blessing for us and all those around us. Thank you. May all beings near and far, seen and unseen, share in the blessings of our lives.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.